You know, we think that the New Testament is the second portion of our Bibles, right? If I asked you, do you have a New Testament or what's the New Testament? You pull out a Bible and say this section from Matthew on. Jesus says the New Testament is where? In his blood. You know that the New Testament book or the books of the New Testament, you know that that's not the new covenant? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The title of our study or discussion this morning is The Time is Fulfilled. And uh, in looking at the time being fulfilled, if you recall, the, the burden of Christ's preaching, when he began to preach at first, uh, these were his first words in some of the gospel accounts. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of heaven, depending on which, which verse you refer, you're referring to. And then he says, repent ye and believe the gospel, right? He prefaced his preaching with this phrase, the time is fulfilled. The preaching of the gospel, the coming of Christ, was on time, a specific time, a time that was foretold in prophecy. And it was foretold in a very important prophecy that pinpoints the timing of the appearing of Christ. Uh, what Christ was referring to here was the crown jewel of all prophecies that indicated the coming of Christ. The whole Old Testament is full of prophecies about the coming of Christ. But there is one that stands out above all others that has to do with time. And that's what I'm referring to as the crown jewel prophecy. Anyone have any idea which prophecy that is? It's the prophecy of the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel that pinpoints the time when the Messiah would appear. And this is what Christ was referring to. Now, they're, they're all important, don't get me wrong. But uh, Daniel stands as uh, preeminent because it actually helps us identify and know that the Messiah that we believe in is the true Messiah. It gives us the time in history when he would appear. And it also gives us some very specific things that he would carry out. That's why we know that this Jesus, who was here 2,000 years ago, that we believe in today, is the right one that was prophesied. Because there are many who claim to be, uh, you know, Christ. There are many false messiahs throughout history. So we're going to explore this, uh, this significant prophecy as to what uh, Daniel has to say about the Messiah, the prince of his people. And of course, this is uh, the prophecy that identifies the work of the Messiah within the space of the 70 prophetic weeks. The prophecy in Daniel. And we're going to look at it in, in just a minute and look at the details uh, of it. <clears throat> but uh, it's important to also note that all these things that the Messiah was prophesied uh, that he would carry out are on the behalf and for the benefit of his people. That's what it's all about. It's for us, for our benefit. And Daniel, of course, records that for us. So uh, let's read it together. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. The angel is explaining to Daniel, the prophecy on what will happen, and this is what he tells him. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Very, very loaded verse. Basically summarizes the outstanding features of the work of the Messiah, and it gives us a time frame. All these things would be accomplished within the space of the 70 weeks. Before the 70 weeks would expire, all these things would come about. All these things would be accomplished, and it would be accomplished by none other than the Messiah. Now, I have uh, heard uh, an explanation to this verse that... I think is a misunderstanding of what the verse says, because it says here, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. The angel was speaking to Daniel, thy people will be none other than the Jews. And the idea that is presented is, the Jews were expected to accomplish all these things in the prophecy. I don't know if you heard that or not, but I have. 
And uh, I, I can assure you that there's no, uh, this was not what God intended whatsoever. No human being can accomplish these things. All the Jews or the Jewish nation could do was uh, usher in the seed, the Messiah. He is the one in God's intention and plan. He is the only one who would bring about a fulfillment of all these things. So God did not have a, this unrealistic impossible expectation of the Jewish nation to accomplish this impossible task and before because they failed therefore you know he said well I'll have to send Christ to do it that's not the case so that's a misunderstanding uh, of uh, of the words of that prophecy only the Messiah would be able to accomplish this glorious work and this glorious work if we look at it I'm not going to spend much time today looking at the time element of this prophecy I want to spend more time looking at the uh, list this very impressive list of six items that are listed in this particular verse of the things that the Messiah would accomplish and do. They can very easily be listed they are, uh, listed off. They uh, make this natural, easy list of six items. If you look at this list carefully, you'll find that it summarizes the plan of salvation very well. Outstanding features of the plan of salvation. Now, I also want us to note something before we go on. When Daniel recorded the words of this prophecy that the angel gave him, to Daniel, all these things were still to happen in the future. None of these things had yet come about. Daniel was looking forward to the time of this 70 weeks, to the time when transgression would be finished when sins would be made an end of. He was looking forward to the time when all these things would happen. While he was living on earth at that time, none of these things had come about. Now, uh, sometimes we miss that, and it's actually a very significant uh, perspective to keep in mind because it helps us understand the, the buildup of expectation and hope for all these Old Testament prophets and believers and the entire Jewish nation who had the oracles of God. They were looking forward to a time when the Messiah would come in and accomplish all these things and usher all these great things. Look, things like bringing in everlasting righteousness, things like making reconciliation for iniquity, all these things Daniel did not have happen in his day. He was looking forward to them. And that's why it makes it very significant uh, when you realize that, what the words of Jesus mean. He says, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He was referring to this particular prophecy, among others, but this is, of course, the one we're focusing on. It has this time element. Uh, this, this aspect of, uh, of the timing when things happen is, is something I don't want to just you know, uh, brush over lightly. Things happen when God says they will happen, not before, not after. God said in this prophecy very clearly that it's in the space of the 70 weeks that all these things will be accomplished. They can be accomplished before that time comes about and they can be accomplished after. And since they are listed here in this verse for us, they are also uh, a package. They are given by the angel together. They are a package. They stand or fall together. Either the Messiah would accomplish all of these or none. In other words, if he comes and accomplishes one or two, that's not, the prophecy is not fulfilled. We know that the prophecy is fulfilled when all the specifications are met. And so this one is a package. It's either all or none. And this is what the last Adam would accomplish, these six items. We're going to look at them in detail. The first one is finishing the transgression. But before we uh, read about that, let's uh, see what Jesus said about all these things that were written about him. Luke 24, verses 44 to 47. Jesus on the day of his resurrection, right? With the two disciples walking to Emmaus, this is what he says. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you whilst, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
One of the prophets that Jesus is referring to, he says all the things that were written concerning him in the law of Moses and in the prophets would come about or would be fulfilled. One of the prophets, of course, is none other than Daniel. And that's the one prophecy we want to explore today. But the interesting thing is, as a result of that, verse 47 is important. We're going to revisit it a little bit more. Hopefully it'll make more sense. But as a result of Christ fulfilling these things, Something came about, what he says in verse 47, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. This is something that came about as a result of Christ fulfilling that prophecy. Without Christ fulfilling that prophecy, this would be impossible and utterly meaningless. And this is what he was communicating to his disciples. And this is why a little later when he was leaving, he actually told them, go and preach the gospel to all nations. Uh, again, I'll, I'll come back to that. Hopefully it'll, it'll be a bit clearer when we revisit it. <clears throat> but this package of six items, the first one listed there, the angel told Daniel that within the space of 70 weeks, uh, Messiah would finish the transgression. This was, of course, fulfilled by Christ. Isaiah 53 is a very familiar passage. It uses basically the same words, verses 5 and 8. It says in verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. A very familiar passage, that wonderful prophecy, another you know, crown jewel prophecy, Isaiah 53. But it doesn't give us the timing. It simply describes for us the, the sufferings of Christ and what he would accomplish. But it uses the same words. He was wounded for our transgressions because he was finishing the transgression. That's why he was wounded. Now, an interesting point here. I was talking to someone once, and they, they actually suggested something that I found very, uh, very strange. And they said, because it's written in Isaiah, he was wounded in our transgressions. What, what tense is that written in? Past tense. And so the person uh, concluded that in the past, long before Isaiah's time, Christ was wounded for our transgressions. I, I did a, I, I kind of said, what? <laughs> that was very odd to me. And, and the person was insisting, no, see, it's in the past tense. Now we need to understand the nature of, of the language of prophecy. Uh, God must have revealed things like that to, to Isaiah and others uh, in a vision. And uh, in a vision, very likely Isaiah would have seen what would have happened to, to the Messiah. And so as he's writing down, he's writing what he saw. And he saw all the different scenes of Christ led as a lamb to the slaughter and so on. And so he writes down, he was wounded for our transgressions. That's what he saw in the prophecy. But the prophecy was concerning something that would happen in the future, not in the past. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And, and I'm mentioning that because, uh, like I said, you know, I, I heard that and, and I was very puzzled. The next verse, uh, 8, that we want to look at, uh, says the same thing. Notice in the same tense, but obviously it's referring to something future that Isaiah even himself looked forward to. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he Stricken. This is referring to the time when Christ would die. Uh, Christ only died once, right? There's no need to even ask that question. So it's only once he died. And he died for the transgression of his people, for us. He was stricken for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. And this is how he finished the transgression. Hebrews in the New Testament comments on the same thought that Daniel records. And here's what it says in Hebrews 9.15. And for this cause... Speaking of Christ, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. While well, this is a loaded verse, a very, very meaty verse. But briefly, Paul is saying it was through death that Christ earned the right to be the mediator for the new covenant or the new testament. That's what he's saying. His death as a man qualified him to be our mediator as a man. And in so doing, this enabled him or this accomplished the redemption of the transgressions. But then he specifies which ones. The transgressions which were under the first testament or the first Covenant, that's what testament means. Covenant and testament mean the same thing. They're interchangeable. What is this referring to? All the sins, 
all the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant or the first testament were dealt with when Christ came and died. Up until that time, they were still outstanding and still undealt with. You realize that? Let me put it to you this way. Daniel's transgression, we don't have any record of it, but he's a sinner like all of us. All have sinned, right? Whatever sins he might have committed, Daniel's sins, his transgressions, were not dealt with until the Messiah came. And Daniel was told by the prophet that the Messiah would not come until the period of the 70 weeks when he would accomplish all these things. And so this is why Daniel and all the prophets and everyone in the Old Testament was looking forward to the time of the coming of the Messiah because he would deal with the transgression, the transgressions of everyone. Daniel and all the others are included in that. And so <clears throat> the sins that were committed all through the time period from the fall of Adam all the way to the cross were accumulating and accumulating and accumulating, waiting for the time when Christ would come and deal with them. Now, don't get me wrong. The people in the Old Testament were forgiven. The Bible says that. Their sin was covered, but the sin was not dealt with. It was waiting for the coming of Christ. And this is what the offering of the sacrifices through that system was representing the time when the ultimate sacrifice would come and finish the transgression. Uh, I'm emphasizing this because, again, it helps us, it helps put things in perspective for us as to what it was like living before the cross and what it was like to have this hope and expectation and longing for the coming of Christ. We don't experience that because we're living on this side of the cross. We already now have a mediator for the new covenant. They did not have Christ as the mediator for the new covenant because he had not yet died. You with me? And so there is this sense of expectation and longing that we totally miss and it's important to keep things in perspective. And so through that, Christ finished the transgression. The next point in the prophecy was he would make an end of sins. And I think uh, we're all familiar with this verse in John 1, 29, when John the Baptist it says here, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And again, this emphasizes the same point we're making. When John says that, it simply means that up until that time, the sin of the world was not yet taken away, right? He's saying, look, here he is, the Messiah. He's, he was physically right there. The hope of all the ages Physically there, and John says, here he is. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 4,000 years of accumulated sin. The world's sin. And here was the time when Christ was about to take it away. Very, very momentous time in history. John had the honor of pointing out the Messiah. Daniel lived hundreds of years prior to that. And this was one of the primary things that Christ came to accomplish, to take away sin. 1 Peter 2.24. Now, actually, before we go to the next verse, I want you to notice something. When John here says, he takes away the sin of the world, it's important to, to notice, he doesn't say sins, right? He says sin, singular. Okay, keep that in mind. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Speaking of Christ, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed so is there a difference between the sin of the world and our sins yes and no sin is sin there is one corporate sin of the entire human race it is the sin of basically rebelling against God, of rejecting God, which caused the world to separate from God. But also, since we come into this world as members of Adam's race, his children, we also commit our own personal sins for which we become personally accountable and responsible. Christ came to deal with the entire sin problem, with the sin of the world, which restores the world, as we shall see in a minute, 
and also with every single individual sin, our individual sins. Uh, just two aspects of, of the sin problem uh, that we need to note. Christ dealt with both of them. And his death as a man, as Peter says here, he bore our sins on the tree when he died. What he was doing was he was making an end of sins, as Daniel said in the prophecy. Here's another one, Hebrews 9, 26. I'm quoting the last part of the verse, speaking of Christ. It says, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's a question. According to this verse, when did the end of the world begin? You know, when we talk about the last day, the end of time, uh, this is very common in, in Adventist terminology, and sometimes it's almost confusing. We talk about the time of the end and the end of time. And you better know which one because they have different dates for each one. And we have very specifics about the, the timings. And they, they're important. They have their place. And yes, some people differ as to which is which and what time of the end when that started and 1798 and 1844 and so on and so forth. According to Paul here, he says, when Christ appeared to put away sin, he refers to that time as the end of the world. Interesting, right? We don't talk about that because that's, that's 2,000 years ago. We don't talk about that. What Christ accomplished when he came to earth, brothers and sisters, brought about the beginning of the end. This is what he's saying. He says it a number of times in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, in his, in his introduction, he actually starts by saying, God spoke uh, through the prophets in different ways and means, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. These last days. That book was written about 2,000 years ago. And so heaven's estimation of what Christ accomplished for the world, when Christ came, it began the end of something. Interesting point, but just to keep in mind. And so he offered himself, he, uh, and by offering himself, by his appearing and offering himself, he put away sin through that sacrifice. You see, the Bible tells us that Christ condemned sin in the flesh. It was in our flesh in our humanity. I'm not gonna get into the details of the specifics of which humanity exactly and so on. He took the humanity that needed redemption. It's really not that complicated to figure out what it is. The point I want to make about Christ condemning sin in the flesh is that up until that time, sin was not condemned in the flesh before. Isn't that right? It had never happened before. And this is what the prophecy is talking about. This is what Daniel and others were looking forward to. Humanity had been living under the curse of sin for 4,000 years. And finally, for the first time in our history, here comes a human being for the first time and condemns sin in the flesh. That's the most glorious event for us. And the, the purpose was so that he can make an end of sin. So he condemns sin in the flesh and in so doing, he delivered us, as we shall see. Now, the evidence that this has been accomplished is also given for us in the book of Hebrews in the next chapter. Chapter 20, uh, 10 and verse 12. It says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God. Paul is making a point here. He's saying the sacrifice of Christ only happened once. And it is good enough to last forever. And this is his evidence that the sin problem is finished, is dealt with, and is removed. Verse 18, he spells it out a little clearer. It says, now, the rem now where remission of these is, and these, that is sins or sin, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now, I want you to think about this uh, carefully. Because he's contrasting the two systems. He's contrasting the system where there were animal sacrifices that were offered, uh, representing how sin would be dealt with. And then he's contrasting that with the one sacrifice that's been offered that dealt with sin, showing the superiority of Christ's sacrifice in dealing with sin. And he emphasizes time and again how the sacrificial system in the Old Testament could not really deal with the sin problem. It was only representative. And his point from the verse is very simple. 
it's it's inferred, it's it's mentioned elsewhere, but it's it's something to to note. It says where there is remission, there is no more offering for sin. In other words, so long as there is continued offering for sin, it means there is no remission. That's why we're saying all the sins in the Old Testament period were not dealt with. The evidence, they kept offering sacrifices again and again, every single day, every single year, because remission was still to come. And Paul's saying, listen, this sacrifice come and it's done. It's no longer being offered, which proves to you that there is now remission. It's one sacrifice forever that has dealt with the sin problem. That's how Christ made an end of sin. Because if you think about it this way, it's a bit of a, an obvious question, but it's a good thought question to consider. If there was complete remission of sins before Christ came, then why did he need to come? Right? There wasn't. In other words, when Daniel was offering sacrifices and all these prophets, they were looking forward to the time when this, this symbol would actually be fulfilled, when their sins would be truly remitted and utterly dealt with and made an end of. And so this is what Jesus came to deal with. So Jesus came to deal with the accumulated sins for 4,000 years. We can't really picture what it would have been like you know, when it says he, he carried our sins, he carried everything. That's a huge accumulation of sins. We look, we have trouble carrying our own sins, right? You don't need to say right. I know we all do. It's just your sins. We have trouble dealing with our own individual sins alone. Christ came and carried the sin of the world and the sins of all of us. And that's what killed him. But he was making an end of sin. Okay, the third item in that prophecy is he would make reconciliation for iniquity. It's interesting to note also. That the, the list, the, the six items that are listed in that prophecy are, you know, build on each other. They naturally flow into, into each other. And so he finished the transgression. He makes an end of sins. And now he would make reconciliation for iniquity. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says, To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Reconciling the world unto himself. He dealt with the sin of the world, excuse me, he dealt with the sin of the world, and so now he can make reconciliation for iniquity. And what, what does reconciliation mean? It simply means to make one again. To remove whatever obstacle and barrier and obstruction there was and to resume a relationship. The obstruction and the barrier that was between us and God was sin. So he dealt with the sin problem. He bore our sins in his body on the tree and he died. And thereby he was making reconciliation. God was in his son reconciling the world unto himself, restoring us back to being one with him. That's the purpose. That's the whole purpose of the plan of salvation. It's not just to, okay, deal with the sin problem, but the sin problem caused a separation. Christ was bringing back this union and this reconciliation. But not only for us, we are not the only ones who benefit from this reconciliation. Notice what it says in Colossians 1, 20 and 21. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in, in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Interesting verse. What does it mean when it says, he reconciles all things to himself, even things that are in heaven? Well, we know that the things that are on earth, that's people, that's us. We need reconciling. What about the things that are in heaven? We don't have sinners in heaven, do we? No. See what happened on the cross. And because of the sin problem, the claims of Satan and his charges against God raised many questions, even in the minds of angels, holy beings. You realize that? Yes, two-thirds of them remained faithful. They did not join him. But there were questions that were raised because of the sin issue. These questions were answered and resolved 
even for the heavenly beings through the sacrifice and the cross of Christ. And in so doing, he reconciled everything to God, whether they be things on earth and things in heaven. You with me? And so this is why we're told uh, in Spirit Prophecy, talks about the cross of Christ being our science and our song throughout eternity. Right? Now, we're not going to be the only ones singing throughout eternity. The angels will sing as well. And so the cross of Christ actually secured the whole universe against sin and the future or any future inroads of sin. Humanity was the uh, immediate victim of sin, but sin had an impact. It raised questions. It raised doubts. It raised whatever things in the minds of all these beings, even in heaven. You with me? And this is what Paul is saying. So what he's doing simply is this. He's not going into the details of it. What he's trying to do is he's trying to magnify the effect of the cross. He's trying to tell us to our dull senses to reveal to us what the cross really means. Says the, cross, the cross did things in the whole universe. It had an impact on the whole universe by reconciling everything to God, by affirming and declaring the justice and character of God. And so this is why later on he says, that he does not want to glory in anything except the cross. If we really understood what the cross means, it's very, very significant. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Interesting, God reconciled us while we were enemies. God did not wait for us to become his friends <laughs> to reconcile us. He reconciled us while we were enemies to demonstrate the, the goodness of his, of his heart, of his character. And the means whereby this was accomplished was the death of his son. But notice something interesting here. The verse indicates that reconciliation was not enough, right? There's something that follows reconciliation. It says we shall be saved by his life. And we're going to look at that a little bit as well. That's the promised redemption being accomplished. But redemption was not just dealing with our sin and reconciling us. Not only did Christ have to deal with our sin, but sin had infected us with this deadly disease which is death, was killing us. So even though your sins would be dealt with, but death would still claim us. We needed a new source of life. You know, people look at sin sometimes and they illustrate it as paying our debt. You know, if you're in debt and someone comes and pays your debt, that's great. You're back to balance zero, but you can't use zero to go buy food. You might still starve, but your debt's paid. You with me? So Christ dealt with our sin, but... He wants to give us life. He doesn't just want to deal with our sin and we go to the grave with balance zero. That's, that doesn't accomplish salvation. And so we are saved by his life. And this is where him, his coming as the last Adam is how he gives us this life. Like I said, we're going to look at that in a minute. But this is the burden of all these prophecies in the book of Galatians. I'll just summarize it here. This is the seed that should come in the fullness of time. That fullness of time was the prophecy that Daniel had given. And he would be born of a woman. And the purpose of that was that he would redeem us. He would bring salvation. He would bring deliverance. He would reconcile us and thereby give us the chance to have this life. All this happened in the fullness of time. Interesting. I'm not sure if you ever considered that, but the fullness of time is, is the perfect time, right? Uh, elsewhere, Jesus says, uh, the Father in His wisdom sets these times. When they asked Him in the book of Acts, Lord, will you at this time set up the kingdom? He says, not for you given to know the times and the seasons which the Father has set or ordained in His own time. And so the perfect fullness of time. Interesting that Jesus did not come at the end of human history and die on the cross, right? He didn't come at the beginning shortly after Adam sinned. He came somewhere in the middle. And the middle here, I'm using it, you know, variably a little bit. Somewhere in the middle. In other words, 4,000 years of Earth's history and time had passed. 4,000 years of sin, and Christ comes to die. And then time continues afterward. 
if humanly speaking, sometimes we think, well, if Christ is coming to deal with all the sins, then logically he should come after the last sin is committed. And then he deals with all the sins. You with me? But no, he doesn't. Because in God's estimation, the sins that we commit, God does not regard each and every one of them the act in and of itself. The problem with the acts of sin that we commit is a heart problem and a heart condition. That's the key. And this is how Christ could die for sins that were yet uncommitted. Because it's the element of sin, the selfishness and the rebellion. That is what Christ was dealing with. And so, anyway, I'm not going to go into too much detail of that. But uh, Christ, as it says here, came in the fullness of time. It was the perfect time to come and deal with the sin problem. And uh, just quickly, uh, in, in, in thinking about that, because I consider I'm talking with people about this uh, a number of times. People say, well, why didn't Christ come soon? Eve expected that her firstborn was the Messiah. You realize that? She thought that. He turned out to be a murderer. You know, the opposite of what she expected. Well, maybe it's Abel. And then the next generation, maybe it's this child. And maybe it's that child. And this is how they lived for 4,000 years. And when God specified to the Jews, this is the race that the Messiah will come in. Every Jewish girl, her dream was that she will be the mother of the Messiah. And this expectation that was building. Why did Christ come somewhere in the middle? Not at the beginning and not at the end. I, feel, I fully believe it's in God's perfect time, but it's to illustrate for mankind and for the whole universe what sin does and the difference that the cross makes. And so he came somewhere in the middle. So we can see a very clear picture of before and after. If he came too early, we would not see the before. If he came too late, we would not really appreciate the after. He came somewhere in the middle so we can see very clearly before the cross and after the cross. And that's why I'm trying to paint you know, for us the, the, the picture a little bit. We, we didn't live it, but the expectation of those who lived before the cross. And here we are, we're living after the cross. And the difference that the cross makes, that's what this prophecy was all about. That's how he made reconciliation for sin, for iniquity. Fourth item, he would bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, this flows out from what we just read in Romans, that we are saved by his life. What kind of life did Christ live and have? Would you say he lived a righteous life? Yes. Perfectly righteous life. That's what saves us. It's in the life of Christ, in his experience with sin and Satan and overcoming, that he brought in everlasting righteousness. It's a righteousness that lasts forever. We do not need any other life. We do not need any more righteousness than what is contained in the life of Christ. And that's why Romans says we are saved by his life. And I will add my translation or my insertion there. We are saved by his righteous life. It was the resurrection of Christ that opened the way for all of us to live again. That's why when he came out of the grave, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, right? Which life? An everlasting, righteous life. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Notice what the apostle says. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Beautiful, powerful verse. But I want to focus on that word. Paul says, but now. What does that mean? Why is he saying now? When you say now, what are you trying to indicate? Okay, a change in time. When I say now we're going to begin this, the meeting, it means before then it didn't begin. What Paul is saying is, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It wasn't manifested ever before that time. You realize that? Daniel did not see the righteousness of God without the law manifested. He prophesied about it. He wrote it down and he wished that he would see it, but he didn't. Because it said in the space of the 70 weeks, the Messiah would bring in everlasting righteousness. It was something that they all looked forward to. Up until that time, in the time of Daniel, the righteousness of God was 
was contained in the law that he had given. Instructions to teach them what righteousness was like. But it was never manifested. It was never lived. It was never demonstrated in a life, in a person, in a human being ever before. You with me? Paul, writing obviously after the cross, after the resurrection, he's telling the Romans, he says, listen, now the righteousness of God without the law has been manifested. And it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. One of these prophets who stands as a witness is Daniel because he told us the time when this righteousness will be manifested within the 70 weeks, when Christ would bring in everlasting righteousness. So that's the fulfillment of that, this amazing righteousness that had never been seen before. And this is why, like we read earlier in Peter, because of what Christ did, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. We are dead to sin that we should live unto righteousness. You see, we can only live unto righteousness if Christ brought in everlasting righteousness. You know, I was uh, discussing, again, some of these topics with people, and someone was, was suggesting that everlasting righteousness is not yet come in. It will come in sometime in the future. And the evidence that they had for this claim was, look at all the sin around us in the world. If you look at the world, what do you see straight away? Do you see everlasting righteousness? You see more sin than righteousness. And this was... Uh, their evidence that everlasting righteousness was not here yet. I heard that and I thought in my mind, that's, that's the tragedy because that means the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. As a matter of fact, it's not just not yet been fulfilled. It failed because this was supposed to come within the space of 70 years or the 70 weeks. That 70 weeks was back in the time of Christ. If that did not happen then, then Daniel was a false prophet and we are in a serious, serious dilemma. You see, bringing in everlasting righteousness is not what, it's not the end of, uh, or the destruction of sin. In the life of Christ, God introduced into humanity his everlasting righteousness. It's there, it's contained there. Just because it's not apparent in the world is, does not mean it's not here. It is apparent to the believer, or it should be apparent to the believer in the, and in the life of the believer. Everlasting righteousness is fully contained in the life of Christ. In other words, let me put it to you this way. There is no more righteousness that God is going to bring in in the future any more than what's in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is not lacking or incomplete that sometime in the future needs topping up. That concept actually diminishes what Christ accomplished. Everything we need, as far as righteousness is concerned, is in the life of Christ. And that is good enough to last forever. That's why Daniel worded it, not, you know, he's not being generous with his words. What the angel told him is meaningful. It is everlasting righteousness. The righteousness that you have now, by faith, in the life of the Son of God, is the righteousness that will last forever. He is our everlasting righteousness. Jeremiah 23.6 puts it this way. In his day, in his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's prophetic. That's a prophetic title for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He became the Lord, our righteousness when he came as a man and lived a righteous life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he wasn't righteous before, but he wasn't a man before. When he came as a man only happened in Bethlehem, when he was born as a man, and he lived a human righteous life for the first time, thus bringing in everlasting righteousness and becoming the Lord our righteousness. And this is why Paul comments on that in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, and says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has been made all these things for us by God. That's referring to when Christ came as a man. He is made for us. It's kind of like uh, Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that child and that son was also made to be our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ was fulfilling the, word, the, the prophecy of Daniel. He was bringing in, and he has brought in everlasting righteousness. That's the effect of reconciling the world to God bringing in everlasting righteousness. He removed the obstruction. His life is a righteous life, and we are saved by that righteous 
life. <clears throat> so it is complete. And this is why the apostle tells us that we are complete where? In him, right? In him. So if you want this uh, righteousness, it comes to us by faith. And it depends how hungry you are. Right? Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness, for they shall be filled. That means it's here. That promise is realized. Okay, next item. Seal up the vision and prophecy. We read this earlier. What does seal up the vision and the prophecy mean? It simply means to actually fulfill it and bring it about. Thereby sealing it. Making it unchangeable. That's what a seal accomplishes. Christ's death on the cross sealed this prophecy. The vision and the prophecy by fulfilling it. That's what he told his disciples. Notice. He said unto them, Luke 24, 44. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled. A fulfilled prophecy is an un unaltered prophecy. You can't change it anymore. That's it. God promised it. And it's fulfilled. That makes a complete whole. It's sealed. Christ's fulfillment seals that. Which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And because of the fact that he sealed it. Then verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Maybe now you can appreciate what Christ means. He's telling his disciples. Now you can preach remission of sins. Because I have done it. Before that time, the preaching of remission of sins was something future that would take place. You with me? In the Old Testament, there was the promise that one day, someday, in the fullness of time, the Messiah would come and deal with sin. Christ is telling his disciples, listen, the things written about me and Moses and the prophets have been fulfilled. So now, remission of sins can be preached through my name. <laughs> That's a whole new level that the cross brought us. This fulfillment of this prophecy. And so he sealed up the vision and prophecy. Acts, oh, well, that summarizes that as well. So Acts 13 puts it really well. Acts 13, verse 38 and 39. Paul preaching. He says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Wow. His Jewish audience, that Sabbath there in the synagogue, I don't know how they would have reacted listening to, the, to, this, to this line in the sermon. They're saying, listen, this is, this is Christ. By him, all that believe are justified from all things. And then he doesn't stop there. He's, he's making a contrast. You know, he, he's telling these Jews who are experts in the law of Moses. And he adds this line, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Wow. Paul is summarizing the core message of the gospel. He's summarizing the core message, which later on in other epistles he expounds. Things like Galatians and Romans. He goes into great detail in expanding this line here. That by believing... You are justified from all things. The law of Moses was about doing and obeying. Isn't that right? If you obey and if you do, you receive a blessing. Paul is saying here, as a result of Christ's coming, by believing, you can be justified from all things, which the law of Moses could not justify you from. Interesting. You know why? Why could the law of Moses not justify? Very simple. It was never given or intended to justify anyone. The law of Moses was a small scale, or maybe it's a large scale, but it was a picture. It was a type and it was a prophecy about what Christ would accomplish. The law of Moses had the animal sacrifices, had the Levitical priesthood, had all these elements, all these items. It was never given to the people to accomplish the means of salvation. It was given for the people to show them and teach them about the coming Messiah. That's why it was temporary in nature. Paul is basically telling them, Messiah is now here. To receive 
this blessing of forgiveness and justification, it comes to those who believe. That's why it was so hard for the Jews, because they were used to doing. Here is someone that comes and tells them, all you have to do is believe. And so it was to the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Greeks it was foolishness, as it says. The resurrection of Christ, that stumbling block, what accomplished all these things, opened the door for this justification by faith and the preaching of the remission and forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying people were not justified back then. People could exercise faith in the promise. Daniel believed what God revealed to him. And through his faith in that promise that the Messiah would one, do, uh, one day do all these things, Daniel would have been forgiven, would have been justified, and so on. But that did not come to him because of the law of Moses, but what the law of Moses pointed forward to, that is the Messiah. So I don't want you to, to misunderstand what I'm saying, but this transition here is so, so outstanding. And Paul summarizes it beautifully in this verse. And so the death and the resurrection of Christ serves as the seal of this vision and prophecy. And it's the evidence that all the other parts are true and have been fulfilled. And that's why it wasn't possible for the prophecy to be sealed at any other time or accomplished except the time that God had specified in that timing, the 70 weeks. The next item is anointing the most holy. Interesting that it says, it says that after sealing off the vision and prophecy, we're going through them in, in, in order, in the order that they were given. This is item number six. It says, and he would anoint the most holy. If you look up the meaning of most holy there, it actually means holy of holies or a most holy place. Well, what's that talking about? This has to do with the high priestly ministry of Christ. Part of the prophecy is that Christ would embark on his work as a high priest, signified by this term, anoint the most holy. This would happen within the 70 weeks. Towards the end of the 70 weeks is actually when, when it happened. Not before and not after. Very important point to keep in mind. What does it mean? It means that Christ's work as the Messiah would not just be on earth where he dealt with the sin problem, made an end of sin and made reconciliation for iniquity and brought in everlasting righteousness, it would actually extend to heaven. So after his resurrection, he goes to heaven, and there's still an element in this prophecy, anointing the most holy, that will take place. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that, verse 19 and 20. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What's another word for consecrated? Anointed. Christ gives us an entrance through this way by his blood. And blood means life, right? The life of Christ consecrates and anoints for us a way into where? Into the holiest, right? I'm, I'm just looking at the questions based on the verse, right? We're all awake? Okay, we're going to have lunch soon, but not yet. So hold on. We enter into the holiest through the blood or the life of Christ. What's the holy? What's that talking about? The sanctuary in heaven. We now, for the first time in human history, have access to the sanctuary because Christ has made a way. That way is through his blood or through his life. What he offered up on the cross, he died, he rose, that righteous holy life, he went to heaven with it, it was glorified by the Father, but now he's not just the Son of God, he is also a human being. And as a human being, human beings who believe in him now have access. And being the one who made that way, he consecrated it for us or he anointed it for us. And so we have no hesitation, we have no fear, we actually come with boldness to enter into the holiest. We do that, of course, by faith. And it says here, through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And there isn't some mysterious, enigmatic meaning here. It's not, you know, uh, an enigma. What he's talking about here, it's his humanity. 
It says the humanity of Christ. It's as a human that he did this. And because he is a human, we can enter because now he's one of us. One of our race is standing in the sanctuary in heaven that gives us access if we are his children. That's the point that Paul is making here. He consecrated and anointed that. Not only was that anointed, but he himself was anointed because there is there's some, uh, you know, people say, anoint the most holy. What's that referring to? Is that referring to a place or is that referring to a person? Is it the most holy as in the sanctuary or is it the most holy as in Christ? Well, both were anointed. So that, that settles it. The most holy and Christ himself. Let's read it and then we'll see the type for it. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. But unto the Son, the Father is speaking here. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Christ is anointed here as the high priest of his people. This happened after his resurrection and ascension to heaven. He is anointed as a man, as the high priest of his people. And... As a man, he has consecrated for us a way or anointed the holy place to give us access to that. It's very easy to understand because if you remember in the Old Testament, uh, in Leviticus, when God told Moses to build the temple, the sanctuary, uh, he told him to do two things. He was to take holy oil and he was to anoint the actual sanctuary and the items or the furniture. And he was also to anoint Aaron as the high priest. You remember that? Both things. That's exactly what happened because that was a type. Christ anointed or consecrated for us a way into the holiest. The sanctuary was anointed or, or activated, so to speak. And Christ himself was anointed as the high priest of his people. Now that happened in the time that the prophecy said it would happen. Within the space of 70 weeks. Not before. Now I've heard uh, more so recently than before. Uh, people say things like, Christ was a priest in heaven in the sanctuary even before he came to earth as a man. I'm not sure if you heard that or not. I'm not sure if you even believe that or not. But that goes against scripture, brothers and sisters. It goes against scripture. God said that Christ would seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy within the space of the 70 weeks. Not before, not after. This is the fulfillment of that time when Christ ascended. He began his high priestly ministry as a man after he went back to heaven. There was no man as our high priest in heaven before the cross. We did not have a high priest in the heavenly sanctuary before the cross. Some people find that, I guess, strange or even outrageous. But only a man can be a priest for mankind. We did not have a human being priest before the Son of, man, the Son of God came. And it's for this very reason that God instituted an inferior earthly priesthood called the Levitical priesthood. Why in the world would God give man a useless priesthood as far as dealing with the sin problem if there was a real priest in heaven, right? It's because there wasn't. He was still to come, so he gave them this symbol, this type, to teach them about what's coming. So when Christ came, that system finished, which is what we read earlier. Paul referred to it as the law of Moses. And so Christ fulfilled things on time. So when God says things will happen, they happen when God says they do, not when people think they should do. That's the point. That's important to keep in mind. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He knew what he was referring to, the things that were prophesied concerning himself. There is another item in the list, in the list of six that I like to add. And it's mentioned in Daniel, back in Daniel again. Now we go down to verse 27. And it says, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. That's what we just talked about what Christ did. When it says he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, speaking of the Messiah, confirm, what does confirm mean? Establish or ratify or make good. Uh, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week and in the midst of the week, that's the, the last prophetic week, in the midst of that prophetic week, he died. What covenant was he going to confirm? What covenant is being referred to here that he will confirm the covenant for one week? What covenant did Christ came, come to confirm? It is none other than the new 
covenant that was prophesied elsewhere. This is what he was talking about. In other words, the sealing up of the vision and the prophecy also includes this element that Christ would confirm the covenant. This is the seventh element that is not mentioned in verse 24, but it's part of what the work of Christ would accomplish. He would confirm the covenant. Did Jesus do that? He sure did. That last supper when he was with his disciples. Before, just before he died, he was confirming the covenant. He said it in his own words, Luke 22, verse 20. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. When it says here, in my blood, it also means in my life. The life of Christ is the seal of that prophecy. It is what fulfills it completely. In the life of Christ is contained this new covenant. We're going to be spending some more time looking at that in detail in another study. But it's interesting, the words here that he says, in my blood, you know, I'd read them many times before, but they never hit me until one time I read it and I'm like, wow, Jesus is saying the New Testament is in his blood. You know, we think that the New Testament is the second portion of our Bibles, right? If I asked you, do you have a New Testament or what's the New Testament? You pull out a Bible and say this section from Matthew on. Jesus says the New Testament is where? In his blood. You know that the New Testament book or the books of the New Testament, you know that that's not the new covenant? That is the writing that tells us about the new covenant. The new covenant is in his blood. In other words, just because you have the New Testament does not mean you're in the new covenant. You with me? Just like, uh, you know, the Bible, uh, Jesus says, testifies of him. It points to him. It's a person. If you fail to come to where it points, having the Bible benefits you, nothing. And so the New Testament is a living thing. It's not just ink on paper. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking the, the New Testament writing, but you understand what I mean, right? It points us to Christ. It's in his blood. It's his life. That's the active ingredient of the new covenant. So if you're in the new covenant, you have the life of Christ. If you don't have the life of Christ, doesn't matter how much a New Testament you know or verses you know, you're not in the new covenant. That's really what we're trying to say. That's why Paul says we are saved by his life. That's the saving covenant. And this life is elsewhere represented or referred to in the scripture as spirits. Jesus says the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 7, verse 38 and 39, this is how Jesus puts it. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, was not yet given, because the Jesus was not yet glorified. The glorification of Jesus allowed this outpouring of the Spirit in a way that is represented as rivers of living water. That Spirit is none other than His life. This is the ultimate seal of that prophecy. That now we have this life of Christ, this glorified, righteous life of Christ that was prophesied in the time of Daniel. That Daniel looked forward to and believed one day would happen and come. Him and all the other prophets. Even the time when Jesus spoke these words, the fulfillment had not yet taken place. John is, is quick to, to remind us, you know. Jesus made this promise, says, He that believes on me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Remember, John is writing his gospel years after, after the resurrection of Christ. By saying, you know, when Jesus was on earth, he said these words. And then he adds in parentheses, but what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit, which when Jesus said those words was not yet given. And then he gives us the reason. Because Jesus was not yet Glorified. He had not yet finished fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel. It's only when he went up to heaven and finished the last item there, it says he would seal up, sorry, he would anoint the most holy, thereby sealing the whole prophecy. That's when that prophecy was fulfilled. That's when Christ was glorified. And that's when that life or that promise came about where the Spirit was poured out. You with me? And that spirit is the active ingredient of the New Testament. Because Jesus said, the New Testament is in my 
blood or in my life. That life right here, that's what he was talking about. And so when we put all these things together, brothers and sisters, we find that it is a glorious, glorious truth what Christ accomplished as our Messiah. The prophecy of Daniel is an amazing, amazing prophecy. We have all these things. We have the things that Daniel did not have. You realize that? He wrote about them, but he didn't have them. He didn't live to see them or experience them, but he believed them. We have them. Sometimes we wish if we were just to be like Daniel, right? You know, Daniel is a, is a good figure. We look, we look up to Daniel. We don't have sins rec recorded against him. Like we said, it doesn't mean he wasn't a sinner. But because of what Christ accomplished, we can actually bypass Daniel. you realize that? Daniel did not have this. We do. He did not have this outpouring of the Spirit as rivers of living water. That's what John says, right? We have it. Are we making use of what we have? Or did Christ come and accomplish this prophecy and fulfill it so that we could just stay as they all were? You with me? You know, what's the point of preaching all this? Yeah, he fulfilled it. That's great. That's a good message, brother. Amen. And then we're just, nothing changes, right? So the point of preaching is not say, yeah, look, he fulfilled it. All right, great. Yeah, we have the truth. Amen. Now, what are we doing with it practically, realistically? Do we make use of what Christ accomplished and fulfilled? Or are we living like, it will still happen one day, someday in the future. This promise is ours now, brothers and sisters. Christ has given that now. From the day of Pentecost, we have this spirit, this life that has been poured out. The very life of the Son. I pray we will indeed make it a reality in our life, in our experience. So that we can live His life. So that He might indeed be still glorified in our experience not just as something that happened in the past. If you were blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.